Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. This week, former New Zealand cricket coach David Trist calls for a complete review of the game in the wake of the Black Caps' woes in India and Bangladesh. Former Black Cap Lou Vincent talks about his time in Zimbabwe and what the future holds for his career. And we hear from two departing sports bosses, New Zealand Football's Chief Executive Michael Glading and the New Zealand Olympic Committee's Secretary-General Barry Maester. A complete review of cricket and its administration is needed in the wake of New Zealand's dismal performances in India and Bangladesh, according to the former national coach David Trist. The Black Caps have capitulated in one-day series recently against Bangladesh and India, and two draws in the Test Series against India, while they provided a glimmer of hope of a turnaround under coach Mark Greatbatch, David Trist says the problems extend beyond the team itself. There's a lack of direction, uh, inappropriate people perhaps, uh, in, in, in some some positions, it comes from the leadership, starts with the board, goes through Justin Vaughan uh, and, and uh, comes on down. And if, if there's no clear pathway and there's people coming and going and new ideas being floated, uh, it, it unsettles younger players who uh, are making their way into the test environment and one-day international environment and have to cope with their own emotions and own uh, working knowledge of how that atmosphere within a team operates. The more efficient it is, the more clear-cut it is, the more balanced it is, and the more supportive it is, uh, and, and obviously backed up by performance, uh, the more uh, that player will, as uh he, he progresses, uh, get better. And also um, you would review surely the uh, scenario where Daniel Vittori, one of our great cricketers, uh, uh, really right through uh, our cricketing history, has uh, probably found it more difficult than he would have imagined to captain and manage the side. And I think those issues uh, still need to be addressed. Do you feel there's mixed messages coming from the management well, I think clearly there's uh, concern, and uh, you, you have Duncan Fletcher coming in, uh, looking, uh, giving some ideas. These are all sort of fingers in the dike, uh, which never really held back the flood. It, it needs to be a complete review. Look at the personnel that currently they have in New Zealand cricket in other areas. John Wright is one name that springs to mind. Are they making the best use of uh, his talents? Uh, and uh, come back with, uh, in due course, uh, some kind of um, answer. But I don't see that happening until after the World Cup. So clearly they have to keep their fingers in the dike, so to speak, and uh, regroup. Did they make a mistake in not appointing John Wright to the role? Hindsight's very exact, uh, and clearly there were a number of issues uh, around uh, whether John would uh, get that job that came up and uh, it was felt that he, I guess clearly, he wasn't uh, suitable. But 
Uh, John's got a proven record as a coach and with the right management around him and the support of the captain, which clearly uh, probably wasn't uh, there at the time, um, he is an alternative rather than going outside of New Zealand, which if you remember, uh, Stephen, the previous time uh, New Zealand cricket tried to attract a number of top uh, international coaches, they just weren't interested. A, the money wasn't big enough, I guess, but secondly, it's such a challenge that uh, many of them would prefer softer options. That's former Black Caps coach David Trist. Now the former Black Cap Lou Vincent is back leading Auckland temporarily in the 2020 Championship, and he still harbours ambitions to play limited overs cricket for New Zealand again. The right-hand batsman's contract was terminated by New Zealand cricket when he joined the likes of pace bowlers Shane Bond and Daryl Tuffy in the Rebel Indian Cricket League. Vincent recently played in Zimbabwe, and he spoke to Murray Williams about his future plans in the game, the changes he's seen in Zimbabwe, and the number of imports playing in the domestic 2020 competition. If the local players are good enough, they'll make the team. By having those world-class players alongside us in the change rooms and competing against the guys at our level, as a nation we get to quickly see either how close we are to being as good as those guys or, or how, how far away we are. And I've just come from Zimbabwe where we had four overseas per team. And for a nation that hasn't had a lot of you know, international cricket there, it, you can see as the tournament went on, as I'm assuming it will happen with New Zealand cricket as well, and that a lot of young guys will say, well, hold on a sec, I can hit the ball better than Brad Hodge or Blue Vincent and, and I can bowl better than Andre Adams, you know, and, and all of a sudden that increases the, that evolves the confidence in the local players, so it's nothing but a good thing. Tell us about Zimbabwe, you got to the final there, didn't you? What's it like there with, there's been a lot of adverse publicity in recent years about the government, you know, countries cancelling tours, inflation, fuel shortages, that sort of thing. How did you find it? Surprisingly, a lot better than five years ago when we were touring there with New Zealand and seeing cars lined up for uh, two kilometres waiting for petrol, the tanker that would come in once every two months. It was going from that to supermarkets where there would be no food, so it was like pretty disturbing. But this time around, I was humbly impressed with not only the attitudes of the people, because they, the Zimbabweans, they, they've got a great knack of just getting on with things. So I, I was re- really humbled by the uh, experience. Does cricket there get favoured treatment, given Robert Mugabe's interest in the game? You heard the stories about when he was locked up, they played cricket to him to try to drive him nuts, and instead he got a, a real interest in the game. Is, is that still being reflected in the official interest? Well, yeah, well, he hasn't banned cricket from uh, Zimbabwe, so obviously it must be sort of a soft spot. But, you know, I've heard stories from guys who have toured there in the 90s and they'd all meet him, but apparently he hasn't been down to Harare Sports Club, which is right next to his house for um, 10 or 12 years from, what, from what, I, what I heard. Like a lot of places, filled with some form of corruption and, and unfortunately when there's corruption there's a, a lack of trust between corporate sponsorships and people trying to use the funds to create a product. So it's been a big knife in the back for Zimbabwe but I've got a, a company set up at the moment that are acting as agents between Zimbabwe and cricket and the corporate world and these guys have come in and sold a package and we saw it with the 2020 competition that's just gone past. It, it was nothing but success. So hopefully that will build the conference in the corporate world over there and we'll see hopefully uh, the test that has been given back to Zimbabwe next year. How have they been doing in terms of player development? Any sign of a Zimbabwean equivalent of someone like Makai Rantini, for example? Absolutely. I was well impressed with the local talents over there. And when they get a better structure in place with a direction for these players to play international cricket professionally, not only will it attract better coaches, it will attract more professionalism. But no, I saw some very 
talented. We've got raw potential over there. What about your own ambitions? You're still relatively young. What are you now, 31, 32? How strong is the desire to get back and play for the Black Caps again? It's growing on me more and more. I wouldn't be back here in New Zealand unless I had a dream of playing for New Zealand again. But I have been away for a while. I had a short stint last year, which well, it was a little bit up and down. But you know, I really miss New Zealand, and, and the thought of playing for New Zealand is definitely in the back of my mind. But I've got to keep things pretty simple. My focus is obviously on the Auckland job at the moment, and I've got to perform and, and get myself back up to speed. Now, you were living in Britain after the ICL, weren't you? So Shane Bond, Daryl Tuffy, they got amnesty got back briefly in Bond's case so how far do you think the door might be open for you if all goes well with Auckland? It's all about results isn't it? It's the business for me is to score runs and not only lead Auckland as well but I've got to perform and it's as simple as that you know I perform and do well and consistently perform then that's when other opportunities open up so it's pretty simple really get runs and we'll see what happens. Last year, Mark Greatback said you weren't prepared to commit to New Zealand cricket. You disputed that. Have you had any chance to talk to him since? Yes, I have. I spoke to him over the winter when I had plans to come back to New Zealand, just to touch base. There's a bit of history there as well. We've, we've played against each other and he coached teams I've played against, so he's part of the cricket fraternity. So I do, I do try and keep in touch with friends around the world. And He's aware of my position and you know he, he would just reiterate the same point. of Well, listen, if you want to play for New Zealand, you've got to a, commit and secondly score runs. So we'll see how it goes. What do you make of what's been happening across in Bangladesh and, and now in India? I mean, there's some encouraging signs in the first two tests and in the fourth ODI with that big score and James Franklin. And I guess from your perspective, it might be encouraging. James wasn't wanted initially there and Daryl Tuffy injured an arm. He comes in and he had two big scores. Well, that's right. Credit to Franklin. He's been there and thereabouts for New Zealand. He's had glimpses of brilliance and for him to back up two good scores in a row... Uh, it's great to see someone like him stepping up and showing New Zealand that uh, he's a match winner as well. And you know the guys are unlucky. This place of playing in India is, is one of the hardest places in the world because they're so talented those Indians and there's such an abundance of confidence and, and skill. It is slightly concerning the the World Cup coming up and you can sort of benchmark yourself against India at home. So yeah, the guys are aware that there's lots and lots of work to do. And geez, you know New Zealand's always been one of those teams that can bounce back. Fingers crossed we'll be like the opposite of the All Blacks. We're like uh, the four years leading up to the World Cup, we're, we're the opposite. We're woeful and hopefully the World Cup we can be brilliant. So New Zealand cricket are working really hard and the players are working hard and that's all you can do. I suppose you could look at it from another perspective too and think, well, the, the whole aim of going there was to get used to conditions and try to uh, get, get as much as you could out of, the, out of the touring the subcontinent because you're going to be playing in those conditions at the World Cup. So it, it could actually all turn out to be useful next year. Oh, of course it will. It'll give the young guys like Kane Williamson a lot of insight. You know, obviously with Franklin doing well and Brendan with immense pressure and obviously Ross Taylor, you know, he's, he's so close to firing and really getting on a roll again, you know. It's, everyone's career is you go through patterns of, of up and down sort of thing and I've got no issues with the, the talent in that team that will do well at the World Cup. That's Lou Vincent talking with Murray Williams. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. New Zealand football's outgoing chief executive Michael Glading says turning around the game's finances has been gratifying, but satisfying all the different stakeholders in the sport has been his major challenge in the role. Glading will have been in the job for nearly three years by the time he steps down in March, having arrived at football headquarters with the sport a million and a half dollars in debt, but they've just reported their first surplus in four years. 
He believes one of the ongoing challenges for the game is to maintain a high level of performance from the All Whites. I didn't really have a timetable on it, but I think it was really more a case of, of late uh, setting myself new goals and looking looking forward um, for the next four to five years and and uh, I guess making a decision that uh, uh, that I probably wouldn't remain in this job for the next four or five years um, and therefore, and, and what kind of once I got my head around that, then it was like, okay, time to move on. So, uh, and, and, you know, and I think also reflecting on, on what's happened in that relatively short time about, about all the progress that's been made uh, and the fact that you know, I think the game is in is in great shape, and there's some really really good people in the game. Um, we've now got some really good commercial partners on board. Uh, you know, the balance sheet's looking an awful lot healthier than it was at that time. So yeah, I guess it just you know, for, for sometimes in life, it's about timing, and uh, for me, this felt like the right timing. Was that your major goal when you came into the role? Was to to sort the financial situation out? Yeah, I, I, well, I, I guess to, to, to a fair degree, the board had sorted it out, and as much as they'd got a loan, but it was really, you know, part of the goal was to make sure we pay that loan back, uh, and the, and that we ran a fiscally smart operation. So yeah, definitely, um, you know, on a personal level, I, I really wanted to learn, I, I, and uh, uh, I suppose I looked within myself and said, you know, did I still have the hunger? Uh, I found that I really did. Um, so that, you know, and and I've learned a hell of a lot since I've been in here because most. Of my life was spent out in the commercial world and uh, and whilst obviously there, there are similarities, more so probably in today's sporting environment than ever um, but nevertheless there are nuances uh, about sport uh, that, I, that I that I have had to learn. What did you struggle with most getting your head around coming into the role given your background and maybe what you expected from, from other people in the organisation or what yeah. people expected from you? When you're in business, the the uh, success is really judged on one level, and uh, la- largely, and that is you know return to the shareholders or you know making sure the the uh, the yearly business plan is being met. Uh, in sport, uh, there are so many different stakeholders, and they will all they all have their own idea of what success looks like. So that that's quite a, a different mindset. I found that you know first and foremost, you do have to have that fiscal success, and uh, aside from the obviously the, the huge riches that the all whites are given. Us. Uh, you know, we, we nevertheless, even if you like, without that, had had the, the organisation was on a very sound financial footing. So I'm confident, and now of course more commercial income. So I think that the business side of sport uh, has done well, but it was all those other levels and getting used to the fact that you know whether it be parents, whether it be professional players, whether it be under 17 representatives, whether it be referees, whether it be club volunteers, they've all got their own demands and their own and 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 their own idea of what success looks like so that was a real learning and uh, and and makes the job I guess pretty full-on um, but I, you know I'm glad I've done it and I'm glad that I that I've uh, hopefully adapted fairly well to that but certainly quite different to business where where you generally have a boss who really wants to know about the bottom line <laughs> here it's a lot more how difficult or frustrating was it dealing with the disparate groups because it was a pretty fractured set up but regionally I suppose given that various groups wanted different things yeah, I think it's fair too, and I think also the national body wasn't held in high esteem uh, by all parts of the game. So, uh, so there was, uh, you know, quite a job to be done in terms of actually engaging with with some, in, in most cases, disgruntled people, uh, and winning them over. And you know, hopefully, uh, you know, at, at the end of my reign, uh, you know, I've had a lot more wins and losses. I think you can never win everybody over, uh, but you can certainly try and you can communicate, and 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 that's been a real challenge. And I have to say that, you know, previous to this job. 
I worked for myself for three years, and one of the things that attracted me to get back to a job was was dealing with people on a wider scale. And certainly this job gave you that in, in multitudes. But it's been something I've enjoyed, and I've found that uh, people are, uh, are are open and uh, and want to talk. And you know, again, I was warned that a lot of people in sport they all they all consider themselves experts and tell you what to do. I didn't find that. I just but I did find that people want to be uh, engaged. They want their opinion heard, uh, and, and in many cases they demand their opinion to be heard, so it's quite taxing. What's the biggest challenge still facing the game? I guess to maintain, uh, you know, at, 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 at the top level of the game, is to maintain the uh, uh, performances that, that, that the All Whites have had. I think, you know, Australia, from what I know, faced uh, this challenge and that, you know, their first entries into the World Cup were greased with glee and just the fact that they'd made it. And, and then as time has gone on now, the Australian public is demanding that the Socceroos, you know, get through to the quarterfinals and if they don't, they get lynched. <laughs> so, you know, the, the bar gets raised and I guess that's true in all walks of life and, and, and therefore you you know you have to keep continuing to improve and I think that that's something which uh, which will be an ongoing challenge we also have a have a the, our whole football plan which is a grassroots plan and that's quite wide sweeping changes and uh, you know and there will be speed bumps I mean there will be um, but I do think there's a huge sense of alignment I think that there's a uh, willingness uh, to make change but you know people not everybody adapt readily to change so there's quite a bunch of, of, of changes coming um, and and there'll be speed bumps I've got no doubt Does your replacement need to be a football person? I don't think you need to be a football person, but you do need to have some passion for the game. I, I, that was my, my own finding. I think you know my wife will tell you that uh, she said you uh, you would never do this job if you weren't so passionate about it. And I think that's true. I think you you need to be certainly at least have a passion for sport um, and 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 the nuances that that, that, that brings. But I do think that uh, uh, you know a football knowledge uh, is helpful. There's no doubt. Do you see your future being in sport management? I think possibly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really open, open to uh, you know to what I do next. Um, I, you know, I, I had pretty good run in, in terms of business, but I have enjoyed sport, and I have, um, and and I think I've probably now got a better appreciation of of what these roles entail than beforehand. As you say, I think you kind of you come in with, a, as everybody does, into a new role, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> you certainly get down to earth pretty quickly. Um, I think I'm in better shape to, to um, and you know. And I'm passionate about sport. I was brought up in a in a sporting uh, home. My father was a was a was a prominent golfer in his youth, and so always been surrounded by sports. And uh, and, and and that'll never change. So it's great to be able to work in the area that that you have passion for. And I've been lucky. I've been able to do that most of my life. I was talking to New Zealand Football Chief Executive Michael Glading, who's stepping down from the role in March. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only show from Radio New Zealand Sport. Now another on his way out is the head of the New Zealand Olympic Committee. Secretary-General Barry Maester will finish up in the role at the end of the month after 10 years in the job. Maester, who was part of the gold medal winning 1976 Olympic hockey team, has overseen five Olympic Games and three Commonwealth Games during his tenure. He was elected a full International Olympic Committee member in February and will remain on the board of the NZOC in this role. Barry Guy spoke to him about his time in the job and also when Nick Willis might finally get the elusive Beijing silver medal he won after being upgraded from bronze in the 1500 metres when Bahrain's Rashid Ramsey was stripped of his gold medal for failing a drugs test. We have it, we have the silver medal, we are currently trying to plan a function or an event next year because 
it's pretty important, a pretty significant moment for you know silver medal in 1500 metres Olympics. And while it's a long time after the event, we want to do do it well and do it in conjunction with Nick, and he's got certain requirements and requests, and we're trying to work in with him at the moment. So I can't tell you when it's going to be, because I don't know. It's likely to be in the first couple of months, January, February, March next year, somewhere. It, so it's obviously quite a procedure when you've had like a drug situation for things to change. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, it's the IOC is really clear about these things. If you foul up, you lose your medal. And up to, up to seven or eight years, I think it is, after the event, you can still be found out through drugs and lose your medal. So, yeah, and they go through, they've re-minted a new medal. So, you know, this is, this is a big deal. And, and we've got to do justice to that when we give it to Nick next year. Oh, so that's great. You know, you're not getting a second-hand one, so to speak. Oh, no, you know? no, this is a brand-new minted one. No, you don't hand the medals on. But the IOC take them back, so the guy who cheated, his medal gets back, and I don't know what they do with it. They might destroy it. I mean, they, don't, they certainly don't pass them on, though. But you see uh, an occasion for some sort of ceremony. Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, you've got to have a podium, you've got to have a flag, you've got to have an anthem, you've got to do a bit of the things that, that I think uh, go with medals. And what better to do it than in, in front of peers, if we can find an athletic event, and we're working on that at the moment, um, around the start of next year, then that'll be what we'll try and do. So how long have you been with the New Zealand Olympic Committee, and, and what were the challenges in that time? Oh, I've been 10 years, just coming up 10 years, and uh, I think that's a good enough stint. Uh, when I first came into the organisation, I was acutely aware that the Hillary Commission and the Sports Foundation and the New Zealand Olympic Committee were three separate entities that actually didn't uh, communicate too well, and there was a disjunct between them. And I suppose I vowed and declared if I did anything in this space, it would be that New Zealand can't afford to have different entities separate and apart, that we need to work together. And so I vowed and declared to do something about that. So when Spark was born, I was straight down to Nick Hill and saying, hey, look, fella, we've got to get on here and we've got to make this work. And I think it's, uh, it's happened. And I think the relationship that we have today with Spark, NZOC-Spark relationship, is superb at, at all levels. There are no surprises. We work together collaboratively. And in a small country like New Zealand, it's just got to be. We just can't afford to be divided in terms of our administrative structure. So that's probably the most pleasing thing which I think we've, I've worked to overcome. Now, you're moving on to the IOC. What's your role there? Um, as an IOC member, you are, uh, become involved in various commissions and various like subcommittees of the IOC. For example, next March, next February, March, I've got a most interesting task being part of a group which is going to assess the 2018 Winter Olympic bids. So we spend a week in Munich and a week in Pyeongchang in Korea and a week in Annecy in France assessing the value of those bids so that the IOC can put a tick and say, yes, members, anyone you vote for is OK. And I think that's a really good thing for New Zealand to be able to uh, understand more about bidding and bidding processes and lobbying and, and, and getting the structures right for major events. So I'm really looking forward to working in that space and also trying next year to, uh, to better get government, foreign affairs, trade, tourism to leverage off our sporting events trying to give uh, major events in New Zealand a push. Any NSO that wants a major event, I'm in a position to lobby with a lot of international connections. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of building on, on internationalism and trying to give some real life to it in the fact that I'm going to be travelling, I'm going to be involved overseas a lot, so how can I maximise this for New Zealand? So that's the target. Uh, we've seen in the last couple of months a situation with FIFA going through bidding processes. Is that, or what is the biggest challenge when it comes to the IOC? 
Oh, lots for the IOC. You, you can't take 205 countries and get them to gel. It's like the United Nations. There's a challenge, there's an issue every minute because we see the world differently. How do you get 205 countries on a global scale to push together in one direction? I, my own view is that the IOC has been through its traumas, it's been through its transparency issues and, and issues, but I think right at the moment it's being incredibly well led. The process that I see is transparent. Bidding process is absolutely rock solid. Uh, um, transparent and open. It's not to say things can't go wrong, but I'm pretty happy with the, the trending of the IOC towards openness and honesty and, and ethically based, which I think is the most important. And of course the uh, commercial side of that is the <coughs> Olympic Games. Is it getting too big? Well, the IOC recognised some years ago that it couldn't get any bigger, so it capped 28 sports, 10,500 athletes, no more. And what it's saying is we want to bring in new sports and new events all the time, but we're not going to increase the number. So it says to swimming, if you want to bring in long distance swimming, you might have to look and take something out of your other program. And I think that's good uh, because that's happening all the time. And especially in winter sports, we're seeing the rise of these new sports which are youth focused, which I think is great, um, but it'll be at the expense of something else because the games are not going to grow bigger because there's a general view that they're quite big enough and they shouldn't get any bigger. But it needs to become a bit more modern, say, when it comes to sports and that? I think the IC keeps saying they want to be youth-focused, they want to make sure that the games reflect what young people want and need. It's not saying we're doing away with traditional sports, but I think the fact that they're now reviewing the programme after each Games is a huge step forward. There used to be a lock-solid group of sports that never changed. Now they are changing, they are being challenged, and I think that's, that's good and healthy. That's the retiring Secretary-General of the New Zealand Olympic Committee, Barry Maester, talking to Barry Guy. And that's extra time for this week. We'll be back with another show next week. I'm Stephen Houston. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.